BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. He sat me down when I was sick and didn't understand it and said that I was sick. And this was like my post-Olympic depression and that it was like, you know, having a scratch on your knee, but it was a scratch on my brain and that our brains could get injured just like any other. And they could also heal just like any other. And I feel like that was the first time I could visualize what was going on with me, which I think, you know, as athletes, we really like diagnoses that like we understand and are definitive. So I was like, okay, brain is injured and it can heal. And it's not going to happen overnight, just like we wouldn't expect like our broken leg to heal overnight. But I'm in the process and I can heal. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to RealPod, everybody. I hope you've been having an amazing start to your week and a great weekend. I have been a little bit exhausted. (laughs) I am moving into the new apartment with Max still. We moved in last week, but there is always things to be done and also work on top of it. I've just been feeling stressed and scatterbrained, which is why having this conversation this week was so important for me to just talk about mental health, the importance of self-care and really paying attention to how we're feeling because it's so easy to get lost in the commotion of our everyday lives and stop prioritizing our mental health. Today's guest is an incredible mental health advocate, and I am so honored she is here today to share her story with us. Joining us is Alexi Pappas, a former two-time All-American and Olympic runner. She set a Greek national record, woohoo, shout out Greeks, in the 10,000 meters during the Rio Olympic Games and won two NCAA track victories at the University of Oregon. Also, back the pack, we have so much in common. On screen, Alexi can be seen in the feature film Olympic Dreams and Track Town, both of which she co-created and starred in, absolute stud. She's been profiled on the cover of the New York Times sports page, in the Rolling Stones, and NPR's All Things Considered. Most excitingly, though, is that she just came out with her newly published memoir, Bravery, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas. Alexia is here today to talk all about that. We are going to dive into her battle with post-Olympic depression, discuss the various ways college athletes experience mental health issues. She's going to open up about body image as a runner and also show us how we can properly set and chase our goals all coming from an Olympian. So I am listening. I am ready. Alexi, please tell us everything. Before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to Dean. 
Shout out to the real pod dads out there. This review is titled Athlete Dad. It says, as the father of an athlete, I have seen the toll of the pressure these kids face. Here's the kicker. This podcast isn't just for jocks. This is about anyone facing stressful situations, poor body image. This is a podcast about life in this century. Highly recommend. Dean, shout out. I love knowing you listen to this. My dad has competition now. Shout out to all the real pod dads out there. And this is going to be a fabulous episode because Alexi and I are going to talk about the pressures that college athletes face. I think it's so relevant. If you are a student athlete, you're going to relate to what we're talking about. And if you're a parent, this is insight into the pressures that we're experiencing. If you are enjoying this podcast and you want to be like Dean and leave a review, head to iTunes. You can rate this podcast. Takes like five seconds. You can hit the stars and you can also leave it a review if you want to leave me a note. Every single week, I shout out a reviewer and I would love to see a review and shout you out next week. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It means the world to me. And I am thankful for each and every single one of you. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. If you subscribe, you can get that automatic download every Wednesday morning and you will never miss an episode. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode and welcome our fantastic Olympic and most importantly, Greek guest, Alexi Pappas. Alexi, how are you, girl? I'm doing well. It's like any tiredness I feel is full of joy because it means that I'm like doing something in an effort to like release something that I've worked on for like years. And in some ways, like my whole life, if you think about the effort that goes into the living through the parts that go into a book. So I'm really happy. I feel, I feel very happy and I'm happy to be here. That's great. And even just listening to your interviews, it's like, I knew you were an incredible athlete, but you are insanely intellectual. Like the way you think and speak, you're very self-aware, you're very aware of others. And it's made me so excited to talk to you. Have you always been a deep thinker? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what some people don't know, I think, about me is that, you know, the athletics, they've always been a part of my life. And they've always been like a way, I think, to actively learn how to fall down and get back up. And and I love teams and, you know, I love sports. But I think the intellectual side of me, which you can be an intellectual and be an athlete, (laughs) has been there all along, too. It's just you would only know it if you were like the person running with me every single day where we're not just talking about running and things like that. Yeah. And it's very true. An athlete can be both things. Must we not have to clear that up these days? (laughs) And did you start running when you were super young or when did you realize your gift? So I think that running I discovered was like the strength that I had in other sports, which I enjoyed quite a bit more than running at first. Like I loved soccer, basketball, softball, like all these other sports and running just like happened to be the thing that I was best at in all of those other sports. And so I think I knew that I was like a good runner and I ran a bit in middle school. I ran for two years in high school, but I think that it took finding an environment that felt as fun and motivating as I had found in other sports for me to really love running, which wasn't until college. I just feel like sometimes High school teams can be like a roll of the dice as to how positive the environment is. And my environment was like just not super great in high school. And and I looked for that in college and I found it at Dartmouth. 
That's so great. And it's very true that you don't always get to choose the culture or the people who are on your team. You just have to deal with it. And it can be very difficult when you're playing a sport that is so stressful and demanding, and then you don't have that support or friendship between the people you're showing up with every single day. Yeah, it's, I mean, in a sport that is very social, so running, I think it's a pretty social sport because, you know, with the exception of the very difficult moments in a workout where you can't breathe or talk, you're mostly like talking to people and hanging out while you're running, which is fun if the environment like gives you the chance to do so. And to be honest, I did like my teammates. It was more that the coaching staff wanted all the runners to specialize in just running and to quit all the other activities that we were doing. And I think it's sort of like when you are holding onto an ice cube and if you squeeze it too tight, it'll slip out. And I think some of what those coaches were doing were, was squeezing too tight on us, you know? So then when did the love come? Was that right when you got to Dartmouth or a few years into college? I think like with falling in love, and I talk about this in my book, Bravey, I think you believe it's possible before it happens and you are open to it and you like welcome it. And I think when I got to Dartmouth, I was not a great athlete in running at that moment. Like I hadn't run in two years, so I was behind and and needed to like walk on some runs. It was really difficult. So I didn't like love every step, but I knew that I could love it because I really loved the team. I loved the coach. I loved the trails. I loved the school. And so it was more like that potential and knowing that if I hung in there, I would love it more and more. I think I loved it in a way, or I, I was enjoying it. And then maybe I loved it when I, when my mind and my body started to get on the same page, which is a really nice feeling. I'm so fascinated by the sport of running because one of the most therapeutic things about most sports is that you can kind of escape your mind you play and you're thinking about the defender or you're thinking about how you're going to react to a ball. But when you're running, I would imagine eventually your body just does what it needs to do without you needing to tell it, right? When you're like 10 minutes into a run and then you're left with just your thoughts. What is navigating that like? And where does your mind take you throughout the course of a run? It's a great question. To be honest, like I often listen to podcasts and audiobooks because I like company and I think that like the cadence of of someone talking like works better for me than music. Music's good for like a really hard workout, but I like podcasts and I like getting lost in other thoughts while I'm running because if it's a five mile run or less then like maybe I could do it without anything, but the amount that I'm running for it to be like my job is like beyond pleasure sometimes, right? Like it's like 120 miles in a week. So I need support. And I think that I find it by getting lost in somebody else's thoughts. I like being on trails and like observing what's around me, people watching if you're in a city. In terms of that, like, you know, getting lost in your own thoughts, you're always thinking about yourself when you're listening to like a podcast or an audiobook, but you're, it's a kinder way to like, think about yourself when you're seamlessly brought there by by listening to somebody else talk about themselves in like a podcast or an audiobook format. Does that make sense? It does. Is there an element though of preparation for what the actual 
competition experience is going to be like because you won't have a podcast. You won't have music. So when you near events, will you force yourself to just run with the silence? No, I don't. I think that when a race comes, there's such an adrenal fatigue associated with what goes into racing at like the highest level or any level really. And I think you can reserve some of that like adrenal push for that race day. And like the idea that like I need to prepare to be alone in silence. Like I I personally think that it's okay to like make race day really, really unique, but there is opportunity to like visualize. I think some of the discomfort, because I think what you're asking is like, do you put yourself in the discomfort you might feel during a race Mm -hmm. where you have to really focus? And I'm like, No, I don't necessarily. I mean, I think workouts are harder than races. So like physically I am going to that place, but I think mentally I try to visualize the challenging moments and see myself pushing through, but I don't necessarily make myself like do a two hour run with no stimulation besides the run itself. I don't need that, you know? Yeah. And that's interesting. And I bet everyone has their own way of approaching it. And I find it so cool how there's the element of additional adrenaline you experience by not being so planned in it. Would you say you're a planner or you tend to go with the flow more with life? I try to plan in some increments. So like I try to plan my days. My days all look, can look really different. And so I try to like take things day by day and then to set goals that don't extend beyond like a year in advance. Thing about planning too far in advance is that I think often if someone were to ask us, where are you going to be in five years from now? We might underestimate what we're capable of. And it's actually, I think it's human nature to like not know what like specifically where we could go and to give ourselves the chance to kind of outgrow our expectations is a really wonderful gift. And so I, I've never really planned my life more than a year in advance. And I think that's been a good thing. Let's take a quick break to talk about Grammarly. Whether I'm composing my newsletter, writing long Instagram captions, like you all know I love to do, or just sending emails every day, I found that there's a more clear and effective way to communicate than just catching spelling mistakes, which I also have a lot of. No shame. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Grammarly Premium. Grammarly Premium gives you real-time insights and guidance on tone, word choice, clarity, and more so you can communicate clearly and confidently. My favorite feature is the vocabulary suggestions. It's allowed my writing to just be more descriptive, exciting, and honestly just elevated because I'm learning and using so many new words. There's also clarity suggestions, which helps you make your sentences clear, concise, and crisp. Oh my gosh, that was like ASMR, clear, concise, and crisp by cutting out unnecessary and redundant words. Grammarly Premium can help you improve your writing on sites like Gmail, Twitter, LinkedIn, and more, or even just help you level up on things like work, school, and personal writing projects. Elevate your writing with 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash RealPod. That's 20% off Grammarly Premium at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash RealPod. 
new friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink, and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to The Bitch Bible Podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. So in terms of the Olympics, once you got to that fourth year where we were nearing 2016, that's when you decided to set that goal or was it in the back burner of your mind? Because it's interesting to hear an Olympic athlete, you know, most of them look at it as quads, you know, say that that's not actually a helpful mindset for them. I think with the Olympic dream, for example, I was a late bloomer in running. So like I didn't even run my first 10K until I think about a year before the Olympics. So yeah, I would say that like for me to see it as a possibility to go to the games was like closer to the games. I mean, I would say I was training to try to compete for the Olympics, but I tried to set goals, like gettable goals that were more in front of me. So for me, it was like run my first 10K, try to run the Olympic standard. I took it step by step. And I think that allowed me to like, one, you know, grow within reason. Like I needed to like run a 10K first before PRing at the Olympics. Anyone with a goal should just put themselves in a position to keep growing every step of the way. And like for most of us, there's several steps before the dream comes true. And I think allowing those to be goals in and of themselves and give them their moment, that's really what I'm talking about. It's not like I didn't have the Olympics on my mind. But I think I, I had other goals that I definitely wanted and needed to, to do before I got there. And I didn't squeeze super tight again on the Olympics themselves because I knew like that would come if I just keep focusing on like the year ahead of me and not four years ahead of me, you know? Yeah, that's mental discipline right there is saying, you know, there is this thing you want, but you will not get there unless you backtrack and you are very attentive and careful as you master the small things that lead up to it. And a lot of athletes and people in life, you know, with these big dreams, get so caught up with the anxieties and the pressures and the desire to have something super big that it keeps them from just going on the run tomorrow, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe part of that is like having a coach that we really trust, because I think a coach can be someone that looks to the bigger vantage point or, you know, in the, in the creative world, having like a manager, someone like helping be your team captain can really help because it's on them to like, see how this race that's next week fits into the bigger picture. And it's on you to focus on the race that's next week and not think beyond that, you know? So it's lucky when you find a coach that can see the bigger picture. Definitely. Now, this is a question I'm just curious uh, with as a non-runner. How do you keep running when you don't want to run anymore? A couple things. I think one, from experience, I know that like we have rough patches, but that they will shift. So like I think a rough patch is the thing you're talking about when it hurts. And I think if we can hang in there for like a few more minutes, like it will shift. And unless we're really like we're injured or there's some sort of bad pain, it's okay to like try to be patient through those rough patches. And that's a decision we make ahead of time 
to be like, I know this is going to come. And when it comes, I'm going to hang in there and see what happens in three minutes. I'm going to focus on the girl next to me and her breath when my breath like feels not sustainable. And then intellectually, that thing you talk about, like I really value my time. And if I've flown all the way across the country to run a race, or even if the race was in my hometown, but I woke up at 4 a.m. and gave my whole weekend, I am going to push through that pain in that moment because I'm not wasting my time. And so that's like an honest answer that I think gives strength to someone who's not just running because I know what I could be doing with my time. And like, if it means like, I just need to buckle down for 30 more minutes or whatever it is, and just keep putting one foot in front of the other, that's a simple ask. And I just value my time. And I think like, (laughs) it's an uninspiring, but also like really practical bit of advice for anybody, because most people maybe listening are going to be running by choice. They might go run a 5k or they might go out and run. And I think just like, honoring your own time and that you you put yourself in a position to choose to do this over something else with your time so just do it while you're there just like commit you know I love that because it's like a self one to self two in your head like no Alexi come on like we woke up early we are not gonna quit right now and that (laughs) self-talk and that self-hype is really important especially when you're in something by yourself what emotions do you have now looking back on your Olympic experience and what you accomplished? You know, I loved my Olympic experience. It's like when you have a role model that you've looked up to your whole life and when you meet them, you wonder like, will they be what you expect or will they be more or will they fall short? And the Olympics like exceeded my expectations and it was just totally worth savoring every moment of it. I I also experienced this post-Olympic depression that a lot of Olympians have, which I think is just a product of like not understanding or respecting the adrenal fatigue associated with chasing a big dream like that. And I wasn't prepared for it because I think I just didn't have the tools. And I think very few dream chasers do, because if we thought about the moment after the dream comes true, we might not get there in the first place. So I learned like the hard way how to respect the moment after, but it was like certainly challenging, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I really resonate with not being able to, you know, put the appropriate words to an experience like depression. It's one of those things that when you recall in your mind, you feel and you almost have like out of body visuals of what that was like for you but it's difficult to communicate. It's one of those things that like, I have like, I really do understand what happened now. I didn't understand at the time what I was going through because I didn't have the vocabulary then, but I do understand now. I know exactly what happened and I know exactly like what I wish that I had known before that I know now. And I just think so few people are equipped with before, you know, and it's almost like, with our bodies. Do you know the word like prehab, like for before you get injured? Mm-hmm. I think there's like not a lot of prehab for the mental injuries. You know, there's a lot that we do for our bodies to prevent injuries, but I think now I have more tools for prehab for my mind, you know? I love that. It's so important. And one of my favorite things from your op-ed was 
how mental health and physical health should be treated the same. And if that were the case, we would have trainers coming up in the gym to do like we every day we did a prehab for our bodies before practice every single day, but we never did it for mental health. Totally. Totally. What was the first time going through your depression, you realized something was wrong because it's, it creeps up on you until you're at a totally different place. Was it a thought? Was it a habit that changed? Yeah. Like it's so scary because I mean, for me, it was like, I stopped sleeping and I don't know if you can relate to that. Like if you have anxiety and you just, something's keeping you up at night and like, you can either choose to ignore it or you can like pause and be like, like, why, why am I awake still, you know? And so for me, I think the core of it was like, I had accomplished this goal and I wanted to know what the next goal was immediately. And I wanted to be starting chasing that goal yesterday. And I think that's where like we athletes are really accustomed to like always having a goal and it's either given to us or we decide it. And we're always like chasing something. And when the Olympics was over, I think I was like ready for the next goal, but didn't respect like how much fatigue or like how much of a break I needed from even having a goal at all. And so maybe the first signs were like anxiety about that and it manifested in losing sleep, you know? Do you find purpose now before the goal? Like when you just said that, it made me think about how there's always a next thing. There's always a next thing we want. And I think to sustain a good mental place, we have to be able to do that with or without that day of achievement. Yeah. So have you found that balance since this experience? I got some advice because a lot of what we're looking at with these like big goals are things that are out of our control. We can control as much as we can about the big, big goals, but we ultimately like they may happen or not. And I've been given the advice to try to set goals on a daily basis that I like I can do. They could be more character driven goals, meaning like I want to like, you know, try my best or I want to be a kind friend or something where like I could execute this and they're more internal than these like external accomplishments. But with the external accomplishments, it's okay to have those too. But I'm I'm trying to give myself more goals all the time that I can achieve every day because then you feel good every day. Right. And when you talk about like enjoying the journey, I think part of that is also understanding that we're not supposed to feel good all the time when we're chasing a dream and trying to relish in the days that are the rough patches, because if everything was like easy and smooth, we probably wouldn't be pushing ourselves to like a new place. We might not get to another place. And so I'm trying to like do those three things, which is like focus more on like the internal goals. If there's external goals, making like the day-to-day ones more gettable. And three, when there's a rough day or rough moment, accepting that as a part of chasing a dream. So like calmer, I'm just calmer with it, you know? It's like that quote, if it were easy, everyone would do it. Like, of course, everyone would be an Olympian if it wasn't hard. (laughs) it's the hardest thing ever. So not everyone is one. (laughs) Exactly. And so like, of course, it's going to be like rough, you know, a good chunk of the time. And and that's normal, you know. I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Care Of. Care Of is a wellness brand that helps you curate a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best. 
Their products are formulated with good for you ingredients that are backed by science. You can take care of's in-depth five-minute online quiz, which asks you questions about your lifestyle, habits, and health needs to tailor a specific approach and provide you with the best vitamin support. It was super fun and easy to take the quiz. They ask questions about your lifestyle, various regimens and routines. So it's a great way to understand your current habits better. And then not only is the selection of vitamins that Care of curates specifically for you because of this personal quiz, like for real, you are getting a personally tailored approach to your unique health needs, but the products are high quality. Care of is super transparent about the research and sourcing behind each one of their products, which is great because you still get that high quality product, which is so hard to find these days, especially at a good price. But now they are being personalized to you. Also, you can follow care of expert recommendations or just adjust the pack at any time. So what you receive is totally your call. This is great because Overall, this is great because unlike a big resolution for the new year or something drastic that feels out of reach, this is a little change. Adding daily and weekly vitamins to your routine to help support your energy, sleep, digestion, and so much more. You can get 50% off your first care of order by going to takecareof.com and using code realpod50. That's 50% off your first order by going to takecareof.com and using code realpod50. How do you draw the line between your mental health and also mental toughness? Because we've talked a lot on this episode about pushing through something that's hard, but there is knowing when it's something you can't push through, right? There's a chemical imbalance. There's something off like the same way an ACL tear is, but except this time you can't see it. That's probably the hardest thing about this, right? Because there's not a clear scratch or there's not, um, an MRI to show that the tear is there. Intuitively, I think we know when something is like bad pain versus good pain. Like if we really ask ourselves, I think we know when something is like, if we're as kind to ourselves as we are hard on ourselves, we're allowing ourselves to really like know. But I I get what you're saying. You're like, we really need more definitive answers because we're so tough that like, we're going to push through. I guess I just try to root it in things that are more tangible. Like if I didn't sleep that night, that doesn't lie. Right. Like that's like, I can't fake it. I can't force myself to sleep. So that's one indicator. You know, it's funny. I was told by a physio to pay closer attention to my face, which is a really strange thing, but he was like, you know, you have a lot of nerves on your face and your stomach and on your, in your hands and feet. And that's, that's why you feel like butterflies in your stomach when you get nervous but he was like if you are starting to like have a nervous system fatigue which is like the beginning stages of a depression very early like I mean it can lead to that right then you might have something shift on your face and he was right like if I think about some of the injuries I've had or when I started going into that depression I had like either like a weird splotch on my face or like a canker sore or for me a pimple is something that is different than my normal face like I, I'm very blessed with my Greek skin oh my and, gosh. right so, but, but that's personal to me and so there are tangible indicators of mental health symptoms if we just pay closer attention so now if like if I do get a pimple which for me is unusual it might mean like literally it needs to be an easy day or day off, which sounds silly, but it means like my nervous system is trying to tell me that it's overloaded. That's a really great point. 
And is the Greek thing with skin, is that a thing? Because I've had really, I've been blessed to you to have great skin. I didn't know if it was because I was Greek because my brothers <laughs> don't have great skin. But my parents, when they came to visit me junior year, I'll never forget. I was like very depressed. And my mom just looked at me and said, like, mm-hmm. you look sick. I agree. You can see it. I do want to compliment you, though, on your advocacy in being so brave and in everything that you've shared in Bravey. And I I hope everyone goes to to check that out and learn the, the depths of your story. What made you want to be honest about mental health? Because it did come very naturally right in the writing process. It wasn't originally in the plan. And then it came. Yeah. Well, I love that you mentioned like that it was like your parents who like saw the change in you, first of all, because I think for some of us, we need somebody else to help us understand that like something's off. And like, isn't that the same as like with sport where like sometimes you need a coach to be like, you look, your form is like, looks like crap, like stop. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so like, I think it's okay if like, we're not always the ones to be able to identify it. Hopefully we can help ourselves, but like, fine. If somebody else needs to like, see it in us that's better than nobody seeing it with the book I saw I mean man I know that if I didn't have developed the vocabulary to like save my own life which was which was given to me by this doctor then I don't know what would have happened to me and I think it's so sad that some people like get the vocabulary and some people don't getting back to our conversation about high school coaches where it's like Why is it so random if you have like a decent high school experience with sports or not? I don't know. You would hope there'd be more standards or oversight so that it's more positive overall. And I think same with mental health, where I saw that a simple shift in my vocabulary and understanding of of my own mental health injury allowed me to feel like I could heal. And if I could communicate that in a way where other people could have that vocabulary before it becomes like a life or death situation. I would like to do that. And, you know, I think us like people who have been to like the pinnacle of the world, but also the very like lowest lows in terms of what we felt, we have a unique ability to speak to everybody in between, like anybody who's like falls in those in the in-between of like being at the highest high and being in the lowest low, which I think is anybody. And so hopefully we have a unique opportunity to speak an audience where a textbook or like a medical resource might not come with the credibility. And for whatever reason, just like how it meant something different when like your role model says you are capable, that means something different to you than when your dad says it. I think it's the same with a book where like maybe if it came from somebody like me, it would make a difference, you know? Definitely. And I think that that's really, really true. And it's crazy how even in my own life, I'm thinking of instances someone said something to me. And then a month later, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just realized, you know, that the sky's blue. And they're like, I told you that six years ago. And I'm like, it just didn't hit the, it didn't hit different when you said it. Did you have a lot of good mentorship in your life or like good role models that helped you? Like, I don't know whether it was like when you were struggling or when you were trying to believe in yourself. Yeah. You know, I had people in small roles who served small purposes that that ended up being big. I did have one really incredible mentor, Nicole Davis. She's also an Olympian. I don't know if you're familiar with her, who like absolutely changed my life with with the way that she taught things to me in a way I'd never heard them before. But I never had a coach, a direct coach that was that 
classic movie scene, knows exactly how to push the player and make them great. And, and I'm not blaming anyone like on, that's not me trying to put blame. That's just, I, I wish I would have had that, you know, but those coaches are few and far between. Did you then feel like you had to like monitor how hard you pushed? Cause I think one of the things about these coaches is that you feel like you could do your absolute, try your absolute hardest and they'll be the ones to hold you back. Do you feel like that was on you then to like monitor yourself? Yeah, that's interesting. I think it was more the environment and the style of volleyball I was in was yeah. was suited to exacerbate my anxiety and my stress and my pressure. Like it wasn't the right environment for me. Once I learned some of these tools, I was able to approach that same environment in a way that worked for me, but I didn't have the tools. So it's almost like I wish that a coach would have noticed, oh, this doesn't work well for this player. It's actually harming her. So we, let's take it a different way. Oh my gosh. I'm like so interested in talking more about like sports are sports, but there's definitely like different pressures and different paths to like each sport. And I want to like really respect that. And I think it's cool that you have that obviously from your whole life experience. And it does go even sport to sport. It's different, but it goes into the position. And my position in volleyball is to, to serve and to give. I never score a point. So my job is to pass the ball perfectly so that other people can score. And so it was really hard for me to think about how I needed to play perfect for people to just look the other way and be like, great, she's doing her job, but no one was going to compliment me for that. So like perfection to me was the standard or I wasn't doing my job and it was the next girl off the bench. So that was like, and we need to get back to interviewing you. We no, no, <laughs> I'm so into this. But that's so amazing because it's like, that like is like a character trait, like to serve. It's just it's like a, it's like how you see yourself. And it's so wild to think that that would dictate so much, you know? And like, you don't get that like satisfaction. I mean, you have to get pleasure out of somebody else scoring because you know, you were a part of it. You were the assist, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, I remember in soccer, like the assist was so important and like, yeah. God, it's credit. It just was different, you know? And the biggest way I could divert my performance anxiety was by focusing on other people the more I focused on just making others better, the less I freaked out about my own mistakes and insecurities. So it fascinates me that there's not really a place that you can put that energy because it, it is coming down to you. Uh, yeah. I mean, and you know, like, you know, I have this background of like very competitive soccer. Like I get, I think I can like wrap my head around what you're experiencing or what you experienced, but I haven't thought about it in a long time. Like I haven't thought about how like, wanting to like die for your team basically and like doing it or letting them down. Like it's such a complicated thing. There's basically like you're balancing your relationship with all these people and then also your relationship with yourself and your relationship with yourself could become secondary so easily because it's easier to let yourself down than to let yourself let other people down, I think. Definitely. But then we go back to our very, one of our very first points of what if the environment or the team isn't great and your role is to serve? It adds yeah. another component. <laughs> Holy shit. I, I just like, it's so cool to think about. And I just haven't thought about it in a while. And one of the cool things about being here with you is I love meeting 
people at the like top of their game, like in different worlds. I want more of it in my life. I think there's like a balance associated with like that perspective of like the vibration is the same. You're a high achiever, but the environment, the world is different. Yeah. I don't know if your publicist might have briefed you wrong. I'm no Olympian. I'm just like washed up still, you know, living in my college glory days. But (laughs) I will take the compliments. But it's just like people who have like been at the top, like I've not been at the top of the world as you have in your world. Like it's just like college athletics are a big deal. So I associate that as like, I mean, and the pressure of college athletics too, I think can be almost higher than the Olympics because there's like a business associated with it. Ooh, let's dive in. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? Because I, the student athlete lifestyle is like what broke me. I built myself back up, but it it's yeah. difficult stuff. Yeah. Well, I just think that like the coaches in a college environment are being paid to perform and to like bring home this hardware. And I think in some environments, it bleeds into the team where you feel that financial pressure. Like you feel the pressure that the program has to perform. And I'm sure team sports at the Olympic level feel that too. But I felt that in running, it felt a lot more like when I was post-collegiate, it was more like an individual chasing her dream, felt a little selfish at times, but it didn't feel so much like there was an institutional pressure. And I think in college, there's much more institutional pressure, which is why athletes can burn out in college because the school's programs will just do whatever they can to squeeze all the juice out of those lemons while they're there and not think about the moment after your sustainability or your mental health. And so I think the college environment is like, it's a gift. Like I loved being a part of it. I loved contributing, but I also felt the pressure to contribute. Why is it that that didn't break you then? Not that I want it to have come for you sooner, but why, how did you not get depressed then if you were prone to the depression after the Olympics? Well, so I chose to go to a school in Dartmouth that did not have scholarships and it didn't have actually the built-in structure where I was being paid or anything to compete. And so that was sort of a choice. Like I did, you know, I did recruiting trips at Duke and places that do pay athletes to compete. And I think had I been in that program early on before I was like mature enough to handle it, I probably would have not done great to be honest like I wasn't mature enough to have like financial institutional pressure on me on top of the pressure I was putting on myself so I made a choice to put myself in an environment that was like d1 had big goals but didn't have any like you know pressure on my shoulders to like sustain a title and yeah at an ivy the pressures you you get the d1 like very elite level sport but you're not feeling the pressure to win the national championship Yes, it's different. I mean, Dartmouth got better and better, but when I was there, they were not, we were not great. And we like slowly got better, but the standard, the expectation wasn't as high. Now I did a fifth year at Oregon and it did feel different, but I was also 21, almost 22 by the time I did that fifth year. And I was ready for that pressure. So to give you an idea of like a hilarious story relating to this. So Dartmouth, we really wanted to make it to the national championship and we did. Finally, in like a team relay, my senior year, you know, relays mean that like a bunch of us contributed and we were just happy to be there. Somebody in the race, it was like a Florida State girl, slowed down the race and our best runner on our relay was was the miler, which was the last leg. 
And we got third in the nationals, which was like so tactical. It was because this race slowed down and she happened to get in there. But we were so happy. Like we cried. We were like the happiest girls in the world. We all got tattoos. I have a tattoo because we got third in the country. Now, fast forward to the awards ceremony and Oregon got second to Washington. I was about to start my fifth year at Oregon and Oregon did not show up to the awards ceremony. And it was because they were really upset that they got second. And their coach, who would later become my coach, was like, look at those Dartmouth girls. You would have thought they won the world. Now, like you guys, you know, he was upset that they wouldn't show up to the awards. And I think that shows the difference in the kind of expectation that a school like Oregon has on their runners compared to Dartmouth. And it was just such a like eye opener to me to be like, okay, there's just different expectations at different schools. And I think if you are not ready for that, to rise to that occasion and perform or have that pressure, it will really, really burn you, you know? And if you are ready, it's really fun. Like when I got there, I was ready to like have a coach be like, we really need you to score this one point. Like I was ready, but I wasn't ready when I was 18 to do that. So I think when athletes are choosing colleges and programs, it's so important to visualize yourself in a place where you can grow and not be, you know, underwater from the start. It's so true. And the difference in age is, is game changing. I mean, I always think, oh, I would love to be 18 and go to the same coach, same girls, same environment. And I would thrive now because I know about all this stuff, but I didn't. And I think a lot of athletes who are uh, forced to quit or transfer or they get cut or it just doesn't work out for them. I just wonder, would it have been differently had they had the proper warning resource support program to help them mentally navigate this situation? Anything is better than what is the current state. It's going to be a process, I think, but it's possible. And like, it's going to be incremental and it's going to be a lot of like vocabulary shifts. Part of what was important to me about writing this book was showing just how very circuitous my journey was. Because I think some people see people as they are today and they're like, they probably were this way, did this when they were my age or younger, whatever. And the truth is that that might be true. But I think in my case, it wasn't true. It was a very circuitous journey. And I hope that that just gives people permission to like be on whatever journey they're on and still give themselves the benefit of going wherever they want to go. So I have to ask, and a lot of my followers, when they saw you were coming on the podcast, really wanted me to ask you about body image, because as a runner, obviously that's such an element of affecting performance directly. And then also many athletes, you know, being a female athlete myself, I know the pressures of feeling like our body needs to look a certain way for our sport. And then there's also this standard of uh, beauty that we also get pressured to uh, fall into from society. So have you ever struggled with that? How did you navigate it throughout your career? Yeah, it's really interesting. So in running, sometimes what can happen is like, I think there's there can be a really fine line between being really marathon fit and being a certain way where you either aren't healthy or you appear to not be healthy and it can be a fine line. And you know, growing up with my dad and my brother, body image, it was like not even in my vocabulary, to be honest, and neither was, you know, talking about healthy versus unhealthy nutritionally. It was just, we just ate the food that was given to us. And then I got to college and I discovered that running was a weight bearing sport. And I 
observed a lot of like unhealthy situations. And that was really difficult because I understood like it was a weight bearing sport and there is reason to discuss these things, but it felt like if we even talked about it, it was taboo. Like if we even talked about our bodies then there was a problem and you know, it's interesting where it, where it really surfaced for me was when I got in shape and I feel like I was healthy, but I still felt like less womanly and less feminine. And when I would hook up with boys, I felt like a little bit creature-like, to be honest, because I was so strong. And it, it's something that I explored in my movie Track Town and discussed in the chapter of Bravey that is flat chest and freakishly gnarled feet, um, which is what, uh, <laughs> that's what a reviewer for Tracktown talked about my body and described it as and said I was so shameless about putting that on screen. And I felt like hurt for a moment because I think it harkened back to that feeling of feeling a little bit unfeminine in these situations in college. But then what I realized was that I needed to meet more people who like looked like me and were proud of their bodies. And not to give you such a long-winded answer, but like, that's really, I think the key was I met these women when I trained in LA for a term during college who were strong and healthy. And they showed me that, that they saw themselves as, you know, stunning. And I think it really helped me. And as far as it goes with the film industry, I think it's important that we put people on screen that are unfamiliar to people so that it becomes more normal. I definitely relate to just not feeling feminine. I think that's the biggest concern when you're lifting heavy or you're seeing muscle shape is, oh my gosh, am I getting farther and farther away from this like cute, quaint, delicate idea of what a woman is? I mean, and that's why like community is so important, right? And and now there's Instagram, right? So we didn't have that. And that meant that we couldn't see other people that looked like us as much. We only saw what was right in front of us. And that can be limiting if what you're seeing is not like what you feel that you are, you know? Yeah, for sure. Now, if you have a situation occur like in current time where a coach or a trainer or someone makes a comment about, you know, how you should look or possibly your body is affecting your running, but you know, that's not the case because, you know, you know what you're doing. How do you handle that? Yeah, well, it still happens. I mean, coaches, there are some coaches that will comment on people's bodies and assume their capabilities. And I think that what I've learned is one, it's always better to be a hundred percent healthy and 80% fit. I think about it as like a pencil where you can only sharpen it so often to this like really fine chiseled point where you're like peaked at your top speed and your top form. And if you do that too much, the pencil is going to break, right? Like we can't keep sharpening it. It doesn't keep getting sharper. And most of the time we want to write with like a more strong, dull pencil. And I think that for runners in particular, that is something to like absorb and imagine as like we're castles, like we're fortresses and like we want to be dense and strong. But as far as handling what people say, I mean, I remember like a friend's parent was like, you're too small. And this was like when I was like top three in the NCAA, like I was doing really well. And I was what I, I felt that I was healthy. And I think that I was. And it really hurt my feelings to hear that from like a random person who hadn't seen me in a while just because I had improved. 
I honestly like didn't know what to say at that time. I think now I would know better and I would be able to be like, okay. Uh, okay. You're wrong, but I hope you have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, well, and that goes to the question, which I, I think is really interesting is like, how much do we owe other people like trying to change them? And I think if somebody's really getting in our way, like it's our coach or someone we're interacting with, then that's something to bring up and, and defend. But there is some reason also or moments when we can't change everybody, but we can try to put ourselves in situations to be around more positive energies and forces and, and voices. Yeah. So there's probably a time and a place is what I'm saying to like speak up and then to just try to have a, a different community if we can, you know? And I love that analogy of the pencil. It's so true. And, you know, before when I was asking the question, I said like women, quaint and delicate. And to clarify, that's how we had historically been trained to believe we should be. But now, especially seeing like such strong women and, you know, I'm totally thinking of that dull pencil, like it works, it doesn't break, it's it's firm. You can like write a whole essay with it and it can hold up, you know? And I think that's just a great analogy. And it took me years to, to step into a muscular body and like really love it. But I think every female athlete goes on that journey and it's different for everyone. Yeah. And it's a feeling that we want. I think, I think that word is, is a good one for me, but I think if people can find like a word that, that makes them feel, it's a feeling more than like an exact cookie cutter image. Right. And it, I like the idea of thinking my body is like this sandcastle that I'm building and and I think just giving ourselves not only like hopefully the role models, but then the vocabulary ourselves to like to lock into to counter those words that you were saying we are trained to want. I love that. Oh, my gosh. I wish you didn't have to go. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much, Alexi. I appreciate your time. Congratulations on Bravey and everything you're doing. You're just a super cool, super cool person. Thank you so much. And uh I hope that you continue to to do this because podcasts, you never know who they're going to reach, you know, and it's really cool. If you enjoyed this conversation with Alexi, don't forget to follow her on Instagram. Her Instagram is Alexi Pappas, P-A-P-P-A-S. And also her new book, Bravey, is out everywhere now. It is linked in the bio if you want to check that book out, support Alexi and read more about her story. You can also follow RealPod on Instagram at RealPod, where you can engage with content, see behind-the-scenes footage, and also recommend any guests that you want to see on the show. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. Hit that subscribe button so you get that automatic download every single Wednesday and you never miss the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you are enjoying the show, you want to give me some feedback. I would love to hear from you, and I am so grateful that you listen to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. I will see you guys back here same time, same day. As always, keep it real.